0: Do you love Uncover from CBC Podcasts? What's your favorite season? Which one did you skip? What do you want to hear more of? Help us make Uncover even better by taking our listener survey now. Visit cbc.ca slash Uncover Survey to make sure your voice is heard. This is a CBC Podcast.
1: A warning to listeners, this episode contains references to sexual violence.
2: Dear friends of Amina, I am Amina Abdullah Araf's cousin, and I have the following information to share. Earlier today, at approximately 6 p.m. Damascus time, Amina was walking in the area of the Abbasid bus station near Faris al khouri Street. She was accompanied by a friend. However, while her companion was still close by, Amina was seized by three men in their early twenties. According to the witness, who does not want her identity known, the men were armed. Amina hit one of them and told the friend to go find her father. One of the men then put his hand over Amina's mouth, and they hustled her into a red Dacia Logan with a window sticker of Bashar al-Assad. Amina's present location is unknown and it is unclear if she is in jail or being held somewhere in Damascus. I have just spoken with her father who is trying to locate her. He has asked me to share this information with her contacts in the hope that someone may know her whereabouts and so that she might be shortly released.
3: I was just like, I don't know how to react.
1: Sandra Bagaria is in Montreal when she gets this message from her girlfriend's email address.
3: So I just, like, stood in the middle of that park, and I, and I, I read that email, and I started crying. Like, I was really just in shock. But at the same time, I was like, OK, she got kidnapped. We knew one day it would have happened. So, what do we do about it?
1: I'm Samira Moyadin, and this is Gay Girl Gone, Episode 3 The Trustworthy Fortune Teller. Still standing in that small city park, Sandra
3: gathers her thoughts enough to reply to Rania. Saying, I'm crying in the street by myself. I talked to her this morning, I'm devastated. She's never
1: met Rania before, but they are Facebook friends. She knows Amina and her cousin are very close. So close, Amina trusts Rania with everything.
3: She gave authorization and codes of her bank accounts, email addresses, and all her personal belongings to her cousin. So she was making sure in a way that in case something happened to her, there was someone that knew how to access it. In an email, Sandra tells Rania that the world
1: must know what's happened to Amina and that she should go ahead and update Amina's blog
3: with the news. Rania, your message should go online for sure, and I will make sure to spread it on the web. I will contact the journalists she talked to. I don't know what else to tell. I'm trying not to faint in the street. Keep me posted.
1: But standing in the park isn't going to do anyone any good. Sandra decides she has to get moving.
3: So I just, like, gathered my stuff and just, like, walked towards the metro, and I started to look for Amina's messages when she talked to me about different journalists that she was in contact with and see if we could contact them and share the news that she was missing. I was alone in the apartment when I got home, I was thinking about the fact that she mentioned at some point that, like, they use sexual assault and abuse when they, they kidnapped people or, like, in jail. We hear stories how in certain countries human rights are not clearly followed, so... For me, I was suspecting that in her case it wouldn't—you know—her rights wouldn't be folded either. I expected it to be uh, something pretty dark, but I chased. You know, I just removed that that image from my head and 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 just put it on the side and didn't put more attention to it. I just gathered all my energy and my strength to put myself into uh, action mode and f- finding a solution and fixing it. Sandra's next step is to reach out to journalists. So it was pretty easy as soon as someone reports it, you know, one news organization reports it, and then it just like keeps on going and it spreads like, a, like fire.
0: I was in New York at the Personal Democracy Forum, which that particular year was a who's who of activists involved in the Arab Spring.
1: Andy Carvin is covering the forum for NPR as their social media editor.
0: I was sitting at the conference. I had my laptop propped in front of me and Twitter suddenly lit up with people saying Amina's been kidnapped. Amina's been kidnapped. And because i happened to be at this conference and there were other activists there i got to see in real time how the community rallied around her people immediately started organizing they started creating free amina hashtags and little graphics and memes that could be circulated saying that they should free amina people started contacting embassies around the world to have their governments demand her release they reached out to people at the state department because amina was a u.s citizen And so the whole community mobilized both online and offline as quickly as possible. My role as a journalist was to promote the fact that an activist had been kidnapped and was under an extremely dire threat and would be under a dire threat as long as she remained in custody. And so the more of a stink I could raise through my reporting, hopefully that meant the better chance that she would survive the experience. I had no particular clout in government or anywhere else to try to help in a diplomatic way, but I was in a position as a fairly high profile Twitter user covering the Arab Spring to make sure that everyone damn well knew that something truly awful was happening to her and we needed to take this seriously.
1: With the help of Andy and others, the news about Amina starts going viral in certain corners of the internet. Rania's kidnapping post was republished by Les Get Real, a well-known lesbian blogging site. And yes, you heard the pun correctly. Soon it's the biggest story in queer and Middle Eastern online communities, reaching Syria and Danny Ramadan.
4: I got notification that a new post came out on Gay Girl in Damascus. So I went and I read the post and it was a one paragraph. Hi, I am the cousin of Amina. Amina got arrested at this exact time, at this exact location, as she was going to meet with some sort of a revolution committee.
1: Danny and his friends meet in his living room that night to talk about what had happened to Amina.
4: We had maybe 12, 14 people sitting in the house and each person had their own opinion about what's happening. Some people are like, maybe she got arrested and other people are afraid that this will bring a lot of attention to us. There was a couple of people who do blogging in Arabic who decided to delete their blogs on the day of the Amina arrest. So we're just going around in circles talking about what possibilities there is. It
3: was a intense few days. I don't even recount how many interviews, requests I got. That was contacted on Facebook, by email, by Twitter. I think they reached out to my friends also online. They tried even to call me at work. So the, the difficult part was, okay, who do I talk to? You know, I'm not a PR person. Like, I don't have a PR friend next to me and telling me what I should say or shouldn't say. And... But I always go back in my mind that I'm doing it to save her, you know, that I was doing it to find her and to get her as much attention as possible on her situation. The Guardian, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, The
1: Daily Mail, Fox News, Al Jazeera and The Atlantic all cover
3: Amina's disappearance. Sandra's phone is
1: ringing off the hook.
3: That day was surreal. Honestly, it was. There were so many, so many journalists reaching out. My phone was ringing all the time. It was just like being in a movie. Honestly, it was just like being in the turmoil, and you don't know how you got there. In one day, she does five interviews back
1: to back, including this one with BBC Radio.
3: Did Amina? realise that uh, she was in some danger. She knew it. She knew it uh, when uh, they first came to uh, arrest her. I never saw her scared, uh, maybe once or twice, but she got threats of being raped in front of her father. So I don't know if she's going to be dealing with more uh, abusive treatment, being openly gay in jail. Sandra Begaria, whose girlfriend, the blogger Amina, disappeared in Damascus yesterday. Because you recount, you recount, you recount, you repeat, you repeat. Like, it's always about repeating. And I was putting myself on the line, you know. I was exposing myself more than I ever did in my whole life, you know. So I was scared for her, but at the same time, I was going through my own emotions. And, yeah.
1: I guess it's not easy. I, I find that, you're, you know, you're not a very extroverted person anyways, and here you were sort of thrust into
3: the limelight. <laughs> Only thinking about it makes me cry, actually. Give me a second, okay? <sighs> I think I'm actually going through the same type of emotions that I went through when, uh, with all the questions, Samira. <laughs> <sighs> you mean when you initially did these interviews, yeah, repeating because that's what I'm doing with you. I'm repeating, 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 it's just like the exercise, yeah, it's okay, take your time we
1: you know for for me, it wasn't about um sort of getting you to this place, I just this is this must have been a very unusual thing for you to be. Thrust into this space, as you said, sort of sharing of yourself.
3: Yeah, yeah. At some point, I couldn't do any more press. Uh, it was too much. It was too much energy, too much emotion, and and I just felt very overwhelmed. At some point, and I declined everything. I said, "No, sorry, no more comment. No more comment. Not answering. I just left." My phone rang and just never answered because I just couldn't take it anymore, you know? I just decided that it was not anymore about me trying to save her and find a solution. And I just left it. I just let it to other people. I had already my own uh, emotions that I had to deal with. Back in 2020, the FBI claimed to have stopped a wild plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Thank you to the fearless FBI agents, bringing these sick and depraved men to justice. The key to the investigation was an FBI informant whose recordings
4: have never been heard by the public, until now.
0: This is about pointing rifles at politicians and squeezing the trigger.
4: From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment,
3: it's Chameleon, the Michigan plot. Out now wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I was getting a lot of attention from my contacts in newspapers asking me if I know who Amina is. So I felt pressured by all of those folks to start asking those questions.
1: Danny Ramadan had been working for a state-controlled newspaper But he had also been doing a bit of writing for the Western press, under a pseudonym. And right now, all they want is to find anything or anyone who can give them any clues about Amina's whereabouts in Damascus. So Danny starts looking. And the first place he turns to is the private Facebook group he and his friends created for queer Syrians.
4: I posted being like, hey, does anybody know who Amina is? And I don't know more than 150 people, but between me and the 150 people, we know thousands of people. And then between me and the 2000 people who are on the Facebook group, we knew all of the gay community in Damascus, right? So the chances are that when I posted about it, I got a lot of comments of people who are like, oh yeah, I heard about her, but I don't know her, which felt quite weird because Again, family systems. We all know each other, right? And slowly but surely, as the comments became like 150, 200 comments, I was like, who is this person? And and how come nobody knows who she is?
1: Danny's surprised nobody knows who is behind the blog. But whoever it is, he'd always assumed they're not really called Amina Araf.
4: It's like calling her, I don't know, Beatrice Abelson. It was such a weird name. Nobody is called Amina in my generation. It's a very old name. All last names in Syria have a meaning. They can be easily translated to Arabic. And Araf means a fortune teller.
1: And Amina means trustworthy. The trustworthy fortune teller. I mean, a lot of names in all different languages have funny meanings. Like, for instance, my name, Samira Mohia-el-Din, means entertaining revivifier of religion. But anyway, to Danny, there was something off about this one. He really wants to get to the bottom of this and knows the perfect person to ask for help.
4: Yeah, I, I had this police officer, actually security officer, who worked for the regime at the time, who him and I, we were, um, we were hooking up on the side, to be honest. And I have asked him to meet up with me, and we did.
1: They meet at a cafe in Damascus. At first, Danny's lover is acting all flirty because, well, why else would Danny want to see him? But Danny shuts that down quickly with his first question.
4: And then I asked him face on if he have heard about Amina, and he said that he did. And I asked if, indeed, the details of her arrest are true. And he said, of course, like, we don't arrest anybody.
1: Danny rolls his eyes. The security officer slash hookup buddy is just repeating the line of the regime. Who? Us? Arrest people?
4: No. And I'm like, okay, so we can cut the bullshit right now and just talk about this person. Can you tell me if somebody was arrested? And he's like, I'll check our records.
1: Back at home, Danny anxiously waits for the response.
4: And literally 48 hours later, he texted being like, nobody of those descriptions at the time that you described has been arrested at the location that you described. So so that confirmed to me that the arrest never actually happened. This person never got arrested.
1: So Amina wasn't arrested? Danny needs someone else to help him figure this out.
4: I saw Andy's posts on Twitter talking about Amina. I would say I contacted Carvin days after the post about the arrest happened. I
0: didn't know much of anything about him, apart from the fact that he was also apparently LGBT. I was trying to get through the thousands and thousands of messages I was reading on a daily basis. I received a series of direct messages. I wasn't entirely convinced that his persona was 100% real. He might have been a Syrian agent, so I
4: I didn't know whether I could trust him or not. And I remember specifically saying, I don't know who the person that is posting as Amina But I don't think that this is telling the truth. Danny certainly got my attention
0: because he made it clear that he was highly skeptical about her identity. He couldn't find anyone who knew who she was and he seemed very anxious that something strange was going on here. Every time I talked to someone who claimed to know her, they would explain how well they knew her but then say they'd never met in person. And that struck me as very strange. To see a Syrian LGBT activist reach out to me privately and express very grave concerns about her identity while I was simultaneously struggling to find anyone who had ever met her in person made me truly wonder what was going on here.
3: So I was in, we have in the apartment, we had a small office and I hear my phone ringing again because that day I received many calls, but um, I see it's a private phone number. And I answered, but I remember specifically this one because it was like being in a movie, you know, it was a woman that was calling from United States State Department And that she was aware that Amina was missing. Amina Araf isn't just
1: any Syrian. She's also an American citizen. And when a U.S. citizen goes missing, the State Department gets involved. And she was
3: calling me to see if I had any details about her identity, meaning do I have any passport number, do I have her birth location, well, I had her birthday, which was October 12th, but I didn't have anything else. And I remember the woman telling me that they couldn't find any name in the U.S. under uh, Mina Araf. They couldn't locate her or any family member. And I told them, like, look, she told me that she studied in, uh, in Georgia. She spent some years there, that she has cousins there. They said, OK, well, well, we'll look further, but for sure we need, uh, before reaching out to our embassy in Syria, we have to verify because we don't want to create any incident between our two countries.
1: It's June 2011. It's been a couple of months into the Syrian uprising, and the U.S. government is keeping a low profile. There are criticisms here and there of Assad's crackdown, but
3: that's about it. So what I answered them, I was like, look, I'm going to be giving you Rania's email address. It's her cousin, and she normally has everything, so you can reach out to her. Sandra hangs up and just stands there, confused. I was like, well, if they don't find her, I don't know who will find her. The next day, Sandra's still thinking about her call
1: with the U.S. State Department, when NPR gets in touch.
3: But I remember answering that phone call and I was in the streets, not far from work. And I answered that phone call and I trusted the guy. Don't ask me what made me trust him on the spot. I have no clue, but I just did. And I think it was just the perfect timing because I was just ready to explain my version, you know, not people thinking for me.
0: I began reaching out to her, and she began replying, and we just started having off-the-record conversations. I had immediate empathy for Sandra. She she struck me as someone that... She felt like someone that I had known for a long time. She was active in similar circles that I was, even though we didn't know each other previously. It was very clear that she was passionate about the Middle East. She was concerned about activists in Syria, and above all that she was concerned about Amina. My goal wasn't to put her in front of a camera and say, here's Sandra, everyone. Let's talk about uh, Amina's girlfriend. I, I wanted to
3: help. So one of the first questions that Andy asked is that, have you ever met Amina? And I remember clearly saying that I never, never met her, that I tried to schedule some video call or even to call her, but it wasn't successful.
1: Sandra also tells Andy about her conversation with the State Department.
3: And I told him, look, maybe she is someone else. She's using someone else's name or maybe it's a fake name. Sure, I can understand that. I don't mind. But like some people from Syria or activism told me that it was pretty usual, you know, pretty usual to be using a fake name because you don't want to be tracked. So I assumed that, okay, her name is not Amina. Fine. okay, I'm fine with that, you know. But still, I was writing to someone during six months. So... No matter what, there's someone that still needs to be saved.
1: Andy mulls over what Sandra tells him.
0: I knew for a fact that many Syrian activists used sydnips because it was a matter of life and death for them. I felt like I was in a bind because I wanted to get to the bottom of who she was in hopes of better understanding how everyone could go about demanding her release. If we were using the wrong name and didn't know who she truly was, it would make it all the easier for the Syrian government to keep her indefinitely. And unsurprisingly, I started catching flack from people for that because it was clear that I was skeptical about her identity. A number of activists were very uncomfortable with my line of questioning because I think the worst case scenario would be to undermine confidence that she existed when in truth she was an actual Syrian blogger whose real name was unknown and now there was no way we could find her because no one believed she was real. I couldn't help but think about what it might be like for her to be held in some dark, dank prison somewhere uh, with an interrogator and... That image kept intruding into my head.
1: Back in Montreal, Sandra is doing everything she can to help find her lover, who the U.S. State Department and queer community in Syria have never heard of. She's come to terms with the fact that Amina might be a pseudonym, but then she learns that that beautiful face, the face she's fallen in love with,
3: might belong to someone else. Someone sending me the link of a BBC interview with the woman that got all her photos hacked and stolen to be used on Amina's profile on Facebook. What the hell? I was like, okay, it's getting surreal. That's next
1: time on Gay Girl Gone. Gay Girl Gone was written and produced by me, Samira Moyeddin, Brenna Daldorf, and executive producer, Peggy Sutton. Sound design and mixing by Jeff Empman. Original music by Reza Moradas. Amina's blog posts are read by Tracy Rahi. Rania's emails are read by Abla Kandalev. Deborah Dudgeon is the executive producer of podcasts at Raw, and Georgina Savage is the lead producer. Suzanne Hamilton is the production executive. Our team from CBC Podcasts includes Roshni Nair, who is our digital producer. Ashley Mack is our senior producer. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is the senior manager of CBC Podcasts, and R.F. Norani is the director. Special thanks to Raw production team Joanne Patterson, Anna-Marie Batho, and Rowan Lee Potter and to NPR journalist Ader Peralta, who worked alongside Andy Carvin on the Amina investigation. Thanks also to the BBC Motion Gallery via Getty Images for the use of an archive clip. If you're enjoying this series and want to help new listeners discover the show, please take some time to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Consider checking out another series from CBC that I host, Unforked, It's all about the culture and politics baked into the food we eat. You can find it, along with all other CBC podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Gay Girl Gone. Or you can hear next week's episode now by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts. You'll get access to the best of CBC storytelling early and ad-free. Just click on the link in the show description.